Welcome into the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Got a good show ahead for you today, folks. Of course, later on in the program, we've got Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. Beer City Bruiser will join us for that. But first, got to tell you about this book I read this past weekend. I was absolutely enthralled with it. I tell you, sat down and I read The Applicant by Rebecca Hanover. And it's a little bit different than what we normally tackle here on True Crime Tuesday, but it was different in a good way. It had me kind of gripped the entire time. As I'm reading it, I'm really into the characters in this book because these characters, even though they're in a world that I'm not normally used to, and, and by the way, this is a, a fictional work here, but th- these these characters that I'm not normally used to and they're not in my world gra- grab me. They just grabbed me, brought me in, and I was with this book the entire way. In fact, I didn't even put it down. I, I sat down, read this book the entire way through in one sitting, which I don't normally do. This isn't normally my my bag to sit down and read a book all the way through in one sitting. So really, I got to tip my cap to Rebecca before we bring her on here and just say that this was one of those books that I didn't want to put down. I, I wanted to stay with it and I wanted to find out about these characters and and find out where it was going because of the twists and turns. And not everything is what it seems in this book, which I absolutely love. I love the, uh, the duality of different characters in this book, The Applicant. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest before we bring her on. Rebecca Hanover is the New York Times bestselling author of The Similars Duology. Uh, after graduating from Stanford University with a BA in English and Drama, Rebecca joined the writing team of the CBS daytime drama Guiding Light where she earned an Emmy Award. Still, she never lost her love for books, particularly young adults. She now writes young adult as well as adult novels full-time from her home in San Francisco, where she enjoys matcha lattes and a complete lack of seasons. We may have to talk about that. I love my seasons. I know she doesn't like winter. That's probably the reason she's in San Francisco. Uh, When she isn't writing, she can be found in a yoga class or reading anything with her husband and three kiddos. Let's bring her in right now. Uh, Rebecca, welcome to True Crime Tuesday. Thank you so much. That was such a wonderful introduction, and it's great to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. You know, first of all, I got to bring up the lack of seasons thing here. Uh, I know San Francisco is wonderful in the summer because it's not too hot. Uh, And, of course, you get a lack of winter there as well. Why the lack of seasons, Rebecca? What what is it about the lack of seasons that, that... that turns you on so much. What, what's wrong with me? Um, yeah, and as you're as you're asking this, I'm remembering that we are going to go to Tahoe this winter, this the upcoming holidays for a little snow and ah, okay, for for sure. Um, but yeah, it's just I love. It's like always between sixty and seventy-five here. Sometimes it creeps up to eighty or ninety. We have we've had more of that. Lately, as we all know, you know, the weather is getting so wonky mm-hmm. everywhere. But um, uh, I just I love that I don't have to think about it. I don't have to change out my, you know, closet to sweaters. You sort of always need a sweater. Any any day of the week, you could need a sweater or you might, you know, need short sleeves. And you just always have your layers and just kind of makes life simple. Um, but I know it's sort of funny. And I do miss like I love going to the East Coast and seeing the leaves changing and, and yeah. that sort of stuff. So I, I do miss it a little bit. Okay, I'm kind of well, kidding, but I, I um, hear you, I hear you. Well, it works good. for me. It works for me. It does. It does. What's interesting <laughs> is is you have set this book, um, The Applicant, on the East Coast and and in New York in particular. Is there still a love of New York there for you? Yes. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, 
yes, I lived there um, in my 20s for seven, eight years. And um, oh gosh, I, I had always dreamed. I was born in, um, you know, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, you know, which is an, such a cool place, honestly, with so much you know, really cool artistic. Um, I mean, it's the home of the blues and there there's, it's a really, really neat city. Um, but I had always sort of dreamed of one day living in New York city. I loved theater and was like a English and drama major. And I just thought New York is where it's at. You mm-hmm. know, New York mm-hmm. is the epicenter of everything. So, um, I fulfilled my dream of li- moving there. Um, and, you know, totally lived in like a six floor walk up that was like an old tenement building and had to drag my laundry, you know, from the laundromat <laughs> up all these flights. And it was, you know, totally, um, totally living that sort of struggling early twenties life. Um, but it was so worth it because that city is just so, um, so vibrant. And when, you know, when you compare living in New York to the romantic image of living in New York, what are the differences for you? It yeah. wasn't worth it or, or did you find it harder than what you thought it was going to be? Yeah. So it's definitely, it's not sex in the city because as we all know, Carrie Bradshaw's apartment, like she would never have, that never would have worked out. She never could have afforded all those shoes. Like, obviously mm-hmm. um, it's a little more like that show girls, although that was romanticized too. So the reality is it's really, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so expensive, you know, everyone there is pursuing something, you know, art, writing, acting, and that's what makes it so incredible. Um, but it's, it's hard. It's a hard life. And I mean, I, I, I have no regrets. I absolutely loved it, Mm -hmm. but you know, you have, you really have to take the good and the bad and it kind of, it was worth it for me, but uh, not without a lot of sacrifice, you know, and a lot of like, I'm going to eat ramen kind of, you know, mentality just yeah. to make it work. I heard an interesting interview recently that talked about, you know, with, with you being in California and San Francisco has a little bit more of a laid back vibe, but he was talking about LA and the difference between New York and LA. The fact that, you know, he had lived in New York for a long time. This is an entertainer moved to LA and thought New York was the place you went to grind and do that entertainment thing and make waves and make moves. Then he moved to LA and realized LA was the place you went in order to make those moves. And that New York, although there's hustle and bustle and people are moving, it's really LA is where you go to make your mark in entertainment. But I'm curious because, you know, you worked on Guiding Light. You won an Emmy working on Guiding Light New York. Did you feel like New York was more of a center of getting things done and you moved to the West Coast to kind of wind down a little bit, but still keep your foot in entertainment. How, how did it work for you in your career? That's a great question. And though, and I'm nodding along because um, I, I absolutely agree with what he said. Um, I think New York, you know, it's the, the vibes of New York and LA are so different. And um, New York almost has this, like you said, this feeling of like hard work and intensity and hustling and bustling. Whereas in LA on, you know, on the surface, it looks like everyone's kind of chilling out. Right. But they are actually making all those connections. And I think like the networking and just the, the, um, like, I think LA is absolutely the epicenter for entertainment. And so I agree with that. I think New York, it's different. I mean, New York is where like every actor who came on guiding light had 
being in theater and every, you know, it's, it's a much smaller world in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much talent though. Um, so it's, it's different. I would say it's different. I, I came up to San Francisco, um, for my husband's work. And, you know, then I, I, I have three kids, they're 12, nine and four. And so for us, it was like, there were so many parts of that decision, like a life lifestyle decision. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just, for me, New York is where it's at because it just all elements of the city are so incredible. I love the, the subway and the walkability and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. I do have a great fondness for LA as well. Um, but I think you were asking me about the, you know, working on Guiding Light there. And yeah, I, yeah. you know, it's, it, so it went off the air in 2009, as did many of the soaps. Um, so there are fewer of those shows left now overall. And there's obviously fewer in New York um, to provide jobs for writers and actors and, and crew members, um, which, you know, which is sad, like the soaps, most of them just didn't make it over the hump into streaming, even though. We were all hoping that they would. Um, I mean, Guiding Light had, it was the oldest running TV show. It was like, it started in radio yeah. and yeah. then it got switched over to TV and Erna Phillips, who who created it, was this incredible woman. And um, I mean, it was really, she was a pioneer and it was like really legendary. Um, but for me, it was just a dream job. I loved every minute of working on that show and getting to, I started off as an intern was very fortunate to get a writer's assistant job. Um, and then I started learning from the writers who were so talented and um, incredible mentors. And then ultimately got to start writing. And that is where I really honed my storytelling skills um, just off the bat. It's, it's, it is it is in its own way, like a boot camp. And um, you, I mean, there's five hours of TV per week that we had to, create. And if you think about compared to like a streaming show that might have like 10 episodes of the whole, you know, the whole season, yeah, uh, you just have to be so efficient. And um, I mean, the, this is why soap, and this is why actors on soaps can do a, they can do it in one take. Like they don't, mm-hmm. they, they're so efficient and no, you know, don't mess up. And it's, we would actually have um, guest like cameo type actors who came from primetime and would need so many more takes. And they'd say, ah, how are you guys doing this? Like, I need another <laughs> take to get my line. And then the soap actors would say, like, this is what we have to do. This is this is the job, you know? Let me ask you this. Uh, now, I want to talk about continuity for a second, because this, this seems to me like it would be, it might be an issue, not necessarily with, with writers, but maybe even with actors and maybe the struggle between both. Like you said, you're putting out five hours of content per week. So that's, that's a lot of lines. I don't think people realize how many lines that is, how much content that is that you're putting out. Is there ever come a time when you're writing on a serial like that? When, when an actor comes up to you and goes, well, I know my character wouldn't say this. And oh, by the way, did you remember that I did this, you know, six months ago? And that wouldn't be what this character would do because I did this six months ago. And you could probably go this direction with my character. And you go, oh, yeah, wait because you're writing for so many people that you go, Oh yeah, that's right. You wouldn't have done that. Cause you did do that. Yes. Is it uh, get uh, to a point where continuity, I know like in, in radio, we have continuity directors and TV. We have continuity directors. Do soap operas have continuity directors? Yes. Fantastic question. You're so right. Um, there were, I would say, um, I don't want to misspeak because I know there was, that was a pre- 
there was a producing job that was worked on continuity, um, which was, as you say, uh, you know, super important. Um, it also flowed through all the sort of all the pieces like we literally had this continuity tracking document when I was an assistant that at my job every week would be to like write up a short synopsis of every scene and have, you know, track like even things like who entered first, like, you know, who came into the shot first and then who left and who was there. And I don't think we had, I don't think we noted what they were wearing, but like little details that were the kind of things you could easily you know, forget and mess up. So we, it started there and then it sort of ran through, you know, the, the script editor would be looking for those things. Um, then, you know, the assistant director, the director at the day of the shooting. Um, and yes, actors all the time brought things up. And I think it was fairly easy to incorporate those, those changes if it's something that comes up before the scene gets shot. But of course, there was this um one of the soap opera magazines had a column called picky picky and (laughs) my husband always laughed and like loved to look at that because there would be picky pickies like just things that were messed up and of course i mean it happens on even like it happens on every show out there but i'm sure you're right there were more there was more opportunity for that to happen because there's so much more material but you know fans are pretty forgiving and it was okay but yes yeah absolutely i mean you can't track all of that. Yeah. No, but actors were amazing about, I mean, they often would know their, I mean, of course, especially actors who'd been playing the role for so many years, like they knew their character best and they could say, Hey, this isn't quite right. Can we, I have a fix though. Can we change it to this? And then that would be super helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I want to ask you one question about something you'd said previously that, that, and then we can move on. Uh, soap operas didn't quite make it that jump to streaming or didn't quite get to that jump with streaming. But I find that curious. And this is why, I mean, you know, back in the day, I think most of us, maybe even in high school or, or college, we'd, we'd come home and, you know, there's, there's, there's soap operas on, on TV and you'd go, you know what, I'm kind of getting into the soap opera. I don't know why. Mine was General Hospital. I don't know why it was, but I got into it and watched it for a while and you know with the cassadines and everything and i got into that deal when elizabeth taylor was on and, and all that um and i think we all at one time or another got hooked on a soap opera for a time and then we we watched it and, and went oh you know what yeah you got into young and the restless or or you got into guiding light or you got into uh, general hospital or but to me it seems like it would be the perfect thing with so many streamers out there to, to grab a few of these different soap operas and put them on because there's so much room for content and to put some of these soap operas on, you know, you don't necessarily have to produce as many episodes anymore, but to have quality episodes, it, to me, it seems like a slam dunk in your opinion. Why, why didn't they transfer those over to streamers? Great question. And I wholeheartedly agree. Um, it seems like such a miss to not have taken advantage of that. Um, I think I have a pretty limited knowledge of, you know, what went on behind the scenes there, but I think um, it was definitely, it it was floated. It was attempted. I think um, there were a few streamers who definitely came in and tried. I mean, there might've even been a soap or two that did end up on a streamer. I I don't know the details exactly, but the point being, yes, a lot of people agreed with you and tried to make it happen. Mm -hmm. I think it probably was just, um, 
you know, it's so difficult to manage budgets, um, expectations of, you know, um, actors who may, you know, the actors, writers, crew, like, you know, there's guild minimums and just so many complicated factors to it that like maybe they just couldn't make a deal work. I think like ultimately that's kind of what happened. Maybe it became too complicated um, to kind of lift this end because it's so much, it's this entity. It's this like living, breathing thing with like, um, you know, a legacy of, you know, so many different moving parts. So it, it was, it probably, my sense is that everyone wanted it to happen and it just, just failed. No, it's too bad. It's too bad. I don't um, bummer. I when totally you, agree. Yeah, yeah. When you when you moved on from from Guiding Light, which by the way you won an Emmy, I, I've got to ask you this much: when you win an Emmy, what's that like? I, I you know, I, to win an uh, an illustrious award when you're holding that statue in your hand is is it is it a feeling like I've done it when you win an illustrious award like that in your field? What 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 is that feeling? I mean, I I. Um, I'm smiling just remembering. Yeah. I mean, of course it was such a, such an amazing, um, moment in time. Um, I, so our head writer was the one who accepted the award award and we all got to go up on stage, but you know, he was holding the Emmy and we did all later get our own Emmy. I want to, Okay. <laughs> I keep mine over on a shelf and, um, my kids like to be like, my mom won this award. <laughs> um, but yeah, he got to hold it and give the speech and all that. And honestly, I was the youngest member of the writing team. So I was just along for the ride. I was like this. I can't believe I'm even here. Honestly, like it was just such a such a dream. Um, yeah, really surreal. And um, we didn't necessarily think we were going to win. I mean, you never in that position really think you're going to win. You know, it seems like such a crapshoot and it's going to who knows? But um, yes, it was a totally, it was totally, I remember when they announced it and then we were all like, oh my God, do we need to, we have to get up from our seat. Like we gotta, we gotta go up there. And then we're, you know, kind of, I don't even remember. I remember standing up and then suddenly I was up on the stage. I don't even remember how I got there. <laughs> um, yes. Surreal. Surreal would be the best word for it. And, you know, I'm just so proud of the work that we were doing. It was really, yeah. really special. Like again, I don't think I never would have known if I weren't working on a soap, like how much blood, sweat and tears goes into it and how much everyone just cares so much about these stories and these characters. So um, it was such a, and it it is truly a team effort, although led by our very talented head writers who just, they, you know, they're the ones coming up with the overarching story and they're, you know, it, it trickled down to us and then we would write our different various episodes, but they really were, we're leading that. Um, so. Well, you go from writing for other established characters now to wanting to develop characters of your own. You go into the young adult uh, section of, of writing fiction. What is it that made you, first of all, want to get into the young adult section of books or writing for young adults? What was that, what was that passion to go to that particular section of books? Yeah. So around the time that I lived in New York in my 20s, that was the time of Hunger Games, Divergent, Twilight, all of those stories that I just, you know, Harry Potter, I just ate those up. I was like, I felt like um, I sort of found this. And I think a lot of people felt the same way, obviously, like tons and tons of people. But for me, like as a 20 something, it was interesting because I wasn't a teen anymore, but Mm -hmm. I just, just like, 
I felt like I found a community almost like these incredible stories. And then all these people who also felt the same way about them. And I would just go to the Barnes and Noble or the, I think there was a borders at Astor place. I can't remember if it was Barnes and Noble or borders, but like, I would just walk around the, you know, looking at the book. I remember actually um, Lemony Snicket came and I think I heard him give a speech. I mean, this was like 20 years ago, but I just, I found this like real love for those stories um, and kind of had this in the way back of my head, kind of had this dream that maybe I would one day try to try to write one. Um, but it, it didn't happen until guiding light, you know, ended. And then, um, I had had a kid or two and sort of pivoted in terms of what, you know, my writing was going to look like, you know, both practically, and then just thinking about what, what creatively I wanted to do. And so I sort of said, okay, this is, this is the time I'm going to try to write a YA series. Um, and then it took a long time. I mean, it was like five years later, I think I shopped it around and found an agent and a publisher, probably more than five years from when I first had the idea. Um, and that, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it, how it, um, came to be. And it felt really meant to be like, okay, I think this is what I, this was the right thing for me, like creatively. So, um, yeah. And then this book, the last applicant obviously is adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was born, I mean, really both my YA series and this book were born out of um, just a true love and passion for the genre. And I, I devour these books. I'm a huge fan of obviously YA, but now, you know, Ruth Ware and, you know, we all loved Gone Girl and that set off a whole ripple effect, you know, so um this, I had the idea for this book and just felt really compelled to write it. It's a very interesting premise. And and I tell you what, why don't we take our break right here? When we come back, let's talk about The Last Applicant and the fact that we're now getting into the private school system, Easton School in, in New York, and we're getting into the upper crust of society in New York, which I found very fascinating because... I want to kind of talk to you as to where you pull those characters from, where you pull that that feeling for the upper crust of New York, and how you draw us into that world. Because I tell you, that that's kind of a trap in a little bit of a way, Rebecca, to automatically either create a connect or a disconnect with a reader. But you manage to create a connect with people. You manage to draw them in, so I kind of want to figure out how you did that, and I want to I want to talk to you about that with our with our audience here when we come back. The book is the last applicant, a novel uh, by Rebecca Hanover. We have a link in the description of this program. I want you to go get it, folks. This is an intriguing, intriguing novel. I tell you, like I said, I sat down in one sitting, one sitting, and read this book. I was intrigued with the characters in this book. It, you may say to yourself, well, really, a private school and an applicant to a private school? What's this got to do with crime, Tim? I'll tell you, these characters have their own little twists and are a little mm-hmm. bit twisted. I'll put it that way. And we'll explain when we come back. Rebecca Hanover is our guest right here on The Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I am your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Rebecca Hanover. She is the author of The Last Applicant, a novel 
and we have a link to it in the description of this program. I encourage you to go get it right now. Rebecca, when we left people, we were talking about the last applicant, the fact that it is set in the upper crust of New York. Uh, it is set around a school, a private school named Easton Academy. And this Easton Academy is not just impossible to get into, but it is the gold standard as far as, as private schools go. And only the best of the best get in. And once you get in, it is, let's just say, it's got some impossible standards to, to live up to. And we're centered around Audrey Singer, who is the director of admissions at, uh, at Easton. And we're centered around her best friend, Chippy, who's also working in the admissions uh, department. And uh, she's got a husband, Luke, who is a, a photographer, a, a great artist in, in what he does. And we're introduced to some of the other characters in the book as well. And I have to ask you this off the bat, uh, Rebecca, and that's this. My first thought when I started to dig into this book is, oh boy, there's a huge challenge here, and that's this. You're bringing me into a world that there's a lot of people that can't relate to this world. So how are you going to grab them, and how are you going to keep them? Was that your first thought when you sat down to write this, or what was your first thought by casting this world out there? Great question. I'm I'm so thrilled that you uh, read it so quickly. That's the highest compliment um, for any 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 mystery or thriller writer. So thank you for saying that. Um, yes. So it's so interesting you ask that. Um, I should rewind maybe to first kind of explain how the idea came to me, which was um, so I live in San Francisco. I have three kids. Um, we you know we've been through some much lower level scale of, you know, applying for you know, preschools and kindergarten and that kind of thing. It's not nearly the same here as it is in New York. Mm -hmm. um, but there's definitely this intensive parenting, you know, thing that's kind of happening around, around the country. Um, I did not coin that term. There's a great Atlantic article about intensive parenting. There's also snowplow parenting where you push the obstacles out of the way of your kid. Uh, this is all this sort of new new version of helicopter parenting basically okay. um which was kind of when i was a kid i think my parents were sorry mom and dad but i think they were some of the more um you know original og helicopter parents um but now i mean things are that was nothing like if you were a helicopter parent back then you like you know didn't let your kid wander the streets all night and like made them come home and had extracurriculars and like made sure they did their homework. Like it was, you know, fairly basic. Mm -hmm. Now things have gone to, you know, insane levels with, I've, you know, I hear about an eight year old playing soccer with like an, a hidden earpiece so that she can be coached by her dad. Like while she's, you know, stuff like that, where it's just like next level. Right. Really? Um, so yeah, people, I mean, I think this all genuinely comes from a place of, Everyone wants the best for their kids. And I, and parenting is a verb now, right? Like to parent, you know, so everyone's making choices based on setting their kids up for success, you know, wanting to make sure they don't miss out on opportunities. Like I've had, a, I've had someone say to me, like, I just want my child to try every extracurricular at least once, because what if it's, you know, what if they're going to, they're meant to be the next, you know, I don't know, insert, you know, famous athlete here. And sure. like, they just never picked up the racket. So they never got the, you know, and it's like, 
wow. Okay. I get it. I mean, I've, so I'm not immune to this myself either. I completely understand the, the kind of, you know, f- fever around this. Um, but I'm extremely interested in kind of deconstructing it. Right. Mm-hmm. And like really thinking about what all this means and what's actually even good for our kids and what's harmful. Um, so anyway, long story short, I was having coffee with a friend who wanted advice on like preschool admissions, which basically was, you know, me telling her what the different preschools were and how to apply to them. And my mind wandered. I'm sorry to the friend because I started thinking about what, you know, and this, this mythical like admissions director character and what would happen if someone got so desperate, a parent that they actually stalked the admissions director and took things to the next level or, you know, up several levels. Yeah. And then I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. But to answer your question, um, I knew this had to put, had to take place in Manhattan. I knew that that, I mean, it's, it's just the epicenter of many things, but certainly the epicenter of like this, you know, competitiveness and these, some of these like uber wealthy families who have so much, um, you know, privilege and ability to send their kids to these types of schools. And I just knew that that's, it had to take place there or the story just wouldn't work. Um, so as soon as I realized that I also realized, and I'm going to say this without any spoilers, but you'll know what I'm talking about. But I knew that the mom, Sarah Price, who was going to be the one stalking the admissions director, I knew there had to be more to her story than just someone who's just wants the spot at the kindergarten, like so badly, because that's, I mean, sure, we might be like semi, you know, empathetic to that. But like, I knew there, there had to be deeper layers that we could, we could peel apart and kind of you know, get to the core of the onion and see what was really happening for these characters. Because ultimately the book is about so much more than just what it seems on the surface. And that was really important to me that we ha- I had to find those places to go. Yeah. Um, so I guess the answer is that I hoped that with the right character work and character development um, and th- showing the, the cracks in the characters, you know, like Audrey seems like she's got this perfect life but then we start to wonder if that's really true mm-hmm. and you know what are her insecurities what is you know what does she you know how how does she view herself and is that confidence like you know is it is it a performance of it so i hoped that once i started to like really delve into those elements of the characters that people would want to be along for the ride with them in spite of the fact that yes they're living in this sort of, you know, gold-plated world a bit that's not relatable for, you know, most of us. And I love the fact that, and you mentioned Sarah Price, the one mother who's so trying so desperately to get her son in. I love the fact that there's so many layers to Sarah. There's insecurity, there's, there's, there's desperation, there's, uh, there's a, a marriage that is falling apart, there's there's these all these different things that that are happening with her, um, but they're they're factors of her own making. Mm-hmm. And the harder she tries, the more the sand slips through her fingers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yes, yes. So that's that was so important to me that I, I honestly don't think the book would have worked, and I don't think it would have been the book I wanted to write if it had kind of stayed on a surface level mm-hmm. of competitive moms trying to. 
outdo each other. You know, that for me, I mean, that's fun and that's part of it, but it had to kind of go to another place. Yeah. Too. And, and you're writing from different perspectives. So you're getting Audrey's perspective then you're getting Sarah's perspective and the, the fact that you're bouncing and, and you're getting the different perspectives and the, the different stories being told is, is amazing storytelling. It's, it's, it's really good. And for those who are wondering why we're talking about a drama here, there's, there is a crime involved. I can't tell you <laughs> what it is, but there is a crime involved. Um, and that's one of those things that, unfortunately, I know I hate to use the line here, folks, but it's in the book. It's just one of those things that's so spoilery, I can't tell you. Um, but it's it's brilliant. It's genius. And it's it's in the twists and turns, Rebecca, that, that you just go, am I actually reading this right now? The, the, they're so, it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you're, when you're driving on a mountain, you know, and you go, as you, as you find that stretch of mountain, that seems like it's smoothing out. And then all of a sudden it's 20 degrees and I'm sorry, 20 miles an hour and a hard right, right hand turn. And you got to hit the brakes really hard. Cause you can't believe that that turn came up so quick. That's kind of what this book feels like at times, you know, because you think things are going along just the way you think it's supposed to go along. Then all of a sudden you hit that right hand turn in 20 miles an hour and you're going 40 and you feel like you're going to go off the side of the mountain. There are those unexpected turns in this book that you just go, whoa, no way. And I, again, I, love, I love the hairpin turn analogy. That's that's what I was going for. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad it I'm glad it landed. Yeah, and and there's I do have to I do have to ask you this because in every in every book there is the there's the rock or the center of the book that anchors this book. In your mind when you wrote this book, who do you think it is? And I'll tell you who I think is the anchor, the center of this book. Because there is so much drama and it feels like the floor isn't centered. You know what I'm saying? Like there's so much stuff going on and everybody's life is in so much turmoil that there isn't a center. But who do you think is the center of this book that keeps everybody anchored? Ooh, this is a, this is a tough one. You're right, because I did pull the rug out from kind of... I mean, hopefully... I do it in a way that when you look back, I mean, right, that's the sign of like a great twist or at least a twist that works, which is when you look back and say, oh, right, she totally built up to that, right? It's not something where you just pull the rug out and it doesn't make any sense. Um, so I don't know. It's I guess I would say for me, <laughs> I'm so curious if you're going to say the same thing, but for mm -hmm. me, Sarah is the heart and soul of the book and it doesn't work without her and when you know her full story from start to finish it's like oh okay and it feels like audrey's along for the ride more but i it's hard to say that without without spoiling anything but what's your answer i'm so curious now well just the anchor the center who keeps everybody yeah. Yeah. keeps everybody from going Oh, well, yeah, maybe that's a different question. Yeah, um, not, maybe it's chippy. I don't know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that, that keeps everybody from going off the rails is chippy. Yeah, well, yes, then it's chippy, and then it's chippy. Okay, I agree with you. Um, but but um, 
No, but but as far as yeah, the the center of the book or, or would be Sarah. So like yeah. the heart of the book. Is the heart Sarah, of the but, book is Sarah. But yeah, but I yeah I agree that Chippy. Um, that's that's cool that you you noticed that because yeah that was kind of my intent, especially because you don't ex- another thing you don't totally see till the end, but you see how Chippy plays that role. Yeah, when you finish the book, it the book starts out. Much like you would expect, the the outward the outward look of society on on that that slice of life would be well, these people are pretty vapid. They're 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 worried about themselves and their riches and and you know everybody looking perfect. And then you take that deep dive into what this is and and how really how many problems. And it's not just you know hashtag white people problems or first world problems. Um, there are really some real problems going on with with almost every character in the book, except for again the anchor in the in this deal, which is Chippy, which seems to be the one woman who seems to be, although she she seems the most vapid, she's really not. She's really the right. deepest person yes. in this book, but she's just totally. the one who's centering everybody as they're as they're spinning out of control. Um. But Audrey is the one who is trying to emulate Chippy and trying to keep it in control as things are spinning out of control in her world. She's yep. trying to be the most like her. Yeah. Yes, yes, you're, yes, you got, you're so insightful. I so appreciate that, that, yeah, you're noticing all that. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's a very interesting dynamic and an interesting world that you've created here, Rebecca, and that, again, trying to not not put out those those spoilers there but there's i'm interested in 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 different character development here where where did where did you think of the idea of having because it's an unusual idea of having audrey's husband luke come into the picture without giving too much away about luke this photographer who who runs across audrey and be eventually becomes her husband Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he, I have to say he sort of sprang kind of fully formed in my head. Maybe this is like a cop out answer, but um, I feel like I just knew who he was going to be. So basically, once I kind of started really marinating on this, this premise of we've got this admissions director and we've got this desperate mom and even, you know, I didn't, of course, I didn't know from the beginning how it was all going to play out, but I knew Luke would be someone. I knew that his character would be, you know, he's a creative, he's sexy. He's, you know, someone who um, was sort of aspirational for Audrey, because again, there are cracks in Audrey's armor as much as she comes off as it's certainly in the beginning, you know, she's got it together. She's the, she's, you know, you know, imagine the admissions director at one of these schools, like it's, it's a, it's a coveted job. And, and as I say in the book, she's kind of the decider of a lot of people's fates. So, you know, she's got, um, she has some power in that role. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, we, we know the more we read that she has her own insecurities, but I just knew Luke would be, um, Luke would have felt like a win for her that she found him and that he fell in love with her. Um, So he, he kind of, came into my head and really stayed like I didn't change his character much. 
um, from even just that first first inkling of of the idea. Whereas Audrey and Sarah took, I mean, and obviously they're more of the we're hearing their voices. They're the you know the main heart and soul of the book. I really worked a long time on their character development before I started writing to really make sure that it those layers were right and their motivations and all that. And which is actually something I can say, like I learned as a soap opera writer, because like I said, those, those long running characters are, you know, they make, they make or break the show and a really great story comes organically mm-hmm. from the characters. Um, and that hopefully is true. Hopefully that feels true here as well. Well, in, in a in a great story sometimes happens when someone makes an honest mistake. And and Audrey really makes an honest mistake here in that she Yeah. it, it comes out of compassion and maybe seeing yep. something in Sarah that she sees in herself. And and she we should explain to our audience that there's a, a deadline in Easton and, and that they only allow so many applicants to Easton. It's like two hundred and fifty, I believe. Um, and the deadline for applicants is set. Sarah gets her application in for her son a little bit too late, but she sends an email to, to Audrey begging and pleading to get her son in. Uh, and Audrey takes a little bit of pity on her and decides, well, you know, she sent kind of an awkward email, a very awkward email to her. And then a follow-up to that email, it's even more awkward and it turns out maybe she's had a couple of glasses of wine as she's done so. And it's so awkward and so different and so original that she goes, well, okay, maybe I should take a little pity on her. And you know what? Forward the application anyways, which is maybe a violation of what she does in her job. But she's going to let this one go through, even though she shouldn't. This, this is a direct violation of what she does in her own job. So she's made the exception, which tends tends to be a deadly exception. Now, at this point, she's taken a step over the line to which Sarah is overly grateful and takes her step over the line and decides to have flowers delivered to her, but doesn't do it the conventional way because flowers should be delivered through the receptionist at at the academy, but ends up getting them into her office through unknown means. Now we're in boundary crossing territory. Now we're crossing boundaries. And it goes from there. Sarah crosses different boundaries to give gifts to to Audrey. And now it becomes stalkerish. And Audrey's more uncomfortable. And the chase is on. And in this, Audrey decides well, I can't have this happen. And she starts crossing into, into Sarah's world. And then there's different interpretations. Sarah doesn't see it as being stalkerish, does she? No. I mean, she, that's, and that's, I mean, you're touching on exactly what I was hoping to, to kind of do with this, which is, you know, imagine, I mean, this has happened to all of us. It happens to all of us all the time. Someone tells us a story from their perspective and we're like you know it's our friend and we're enraged on their behalf or whatever it is right mm-hmm. um and then sometimes you get the opportunity that you happen to hear you know the exact other side of it and then you it doesn't mean you know maybe you're still empathetic for what your friend experienced but you you have one of those 
oh moments of like that one tiny piece of information was left out or, you know, I had no idea that it was in, you know, in this context or whatever it is. And you just, it changes your whole view of what happened. Um, and I was hoping, and I know I mentioned gone girl before, but I mean, it's the, it's the gold standard in that doing that. And I mean, I'm sure we've all seen it or read it by now. So hopefully this isn't, it's okay to spoil it, but you know, that midpoint where you finally hear from Amy, um, not just her diary entries, but her, you know, what she's actually experiencing. And you just mm -hmm. say, oh, you know, and it's this huge aha lightning bolt moment. Um, and I really wanted to play with that. I mean, it's the unreliable narr narrator, you know, yeah. basically. Um, yep. And I really wanted to play with that. Um, and no, yeah, Sarah sees everything she's done as justified. And, um, you know, she assumes that others will see it through the lens that she's seeing it through and through her lens, it does kind of make sense. I mean, when you're reading her version of events, it's, you get it, you get yeah. it more, yeah. you know, yeah. you still think she's nutty and neurotic and all these things, but it doesn't. So I, yeah, that was so much fun to play with. And it was a huge, you know, part of the story for me. But one person's a little nutty and neurotic is another person's dangerous and stalkerish. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where this misconstruement ends up becoming dangerous to all involved. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's reputations on the line and there's high stakes at line. There's money on the line and, and it becomes dangerous in the meantime. So that, that's, that's kind of where we have to leave it folks. Unfortunately, that's, but I'm telling you, it, it gets deeper than that. I've left it at a very surface spot for you. I, I, I just can't go further than that. But in that, Audrey can't, it's kind of unfortunate. Audrey can't go to Chippy and tell her this. She can't go to anybody at the school and tell her, tell anybody this. Because if she does, she risks losing her job because she's violated rules to let Sarah get her application in. It's that yep. simple. She's violated a few other things too, but you'll have to read the book to find that out. <laughs> you'll have to read, but yes, yeah. no, yeah, she's she really becomes trapped, and Sarah's so trapped by her circumstances, and yeah, I just I my hope is that you just don't know what's up and what's down until you get to the end, and and that you, you know, kind of yeah, see, you know, just that turning of everything on its head, like happens a couple times and um mm -hmm. was just like really what made the book both you know a delight to write but also like you know i'm ho I'm hoping to give people this experience where they just don't know what don't know what to expect and you have you have it, it <laughs> you very much at the beginning of the the book, you're like, what the F when it comes to Sarah? Why are you doing this? You know, just back off. Just take a breath. And you'll see what happens in the in the back half of the book. There's another what the F, but you you <laughs> you know, you're saying it in a totally different context. Uh, folks, I tell you, this is a this is a classic case study in in why there's two different meanings to everything in life. You know, and, and why you you'd sometimes need to take a step back and figure out what it is that people say or what it is in their intention when in what they do. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting 
psychological thriller. And again, it doesn't. There, there's a crime involved. There's, there's plenty of crimes involved in this. And one of those, one of those, uh, one of those books that you just, when you get done reading it, you're like, wow, I'm really glad I read that because it, it, it gets you thinking. It, it really does get you thinking. So, Rebecca, with that, let me ask you this. After you sat down and wrote this, what was it that you learned about human behavior after you sat down and read, or wrote it? Ooh, um, I think I didn't realize how much I did have to say about this whole world, you know, this the world of being a parent in 2023. Um, I ha- It's like... I was working out a lot of questions while writing the book. And I can't say that I necessarily answered them, but again, I do really think about, I didn't know how much I was even thinking about some of these themes about, Mm -hmm. you know, intensive parenting and the competitiveness and you know, desperation um, until I wrote it. And then kind of, it kind of looked, I kind of looked at it like a mirror to sort of, um, you know, reflect so many of the thoughts I'd sort of gathered over the last, you know, decade of, of being a, being a mom. So it was really quite introspective. And then the the second part of that was, it was, you know, you read the book, so, you know, there's, it's Mm -hmm. it's wild in a lot of ways. It's edgy. It's vulnerable. I am not any of these characters and it's all fiction, but a lot of, I still put a lot of my own, um, you know, different demons and things on the, I mean, that's what authors do. I mean, we turn it into something else on the page, but it still comes from us. Right. So like Sarah, I mean, I'm not Sarah, but I totally relate to the way she thinks about things. Um, so it was vulnerable in a way that my YA series was not like, I feel like this book, um, it, it was, it was a little scary getting people's reactions in the beginning. Um, now I'm so much now I'm used to it and the books out there and it's been so delightful to, you know, to hear about, I'll get, you know, every few days or, once a week or whatever, I'll get some random message. Like I forgot to tell you, I read your book and I stayed up half the night and, you know, I did not see all those twists coming, but people don't, I think people have a healthy understanding of like what's literally, you know, it's, it's not a memoir. So people know, and people can kind of appreciate the, you know, my places, my mind went and had to go to write this. Um, and it, it feels less way less scary now. So I'm totally, um, it was a learning experience in that way, but have have you had anybody who's misconstrued any of the characters? Keep in mind, this is fiction, but have you had anybody who's misconstrued any of the characters and thought, well, maybe she's taking a shot at me, or maybe this this no. is a this this is too close to home, or or anything like that? Not that anyone has mentioned to me. So okay, um, okay. not that I'm aware of whatsoever. Okay. I mean, most people. I mean, I had one. The closest I came to anything that was like you know, even remotely like awkward or whatever was somebody saying like, I don't know. I didn't, you know, I picture you in your sweatpants at the carpool drop off. Like I had no idea that you were thinking about like this whole world with like fashion and, (laughs) you know, I don't even just all these things, you know, and then the darker places that the book goes, who are you? Like, who are you? You know, but I think she meant as a compliment. I mean, I don't think it was anything negative. She just was surprised because it was someone who doesn't know me that well, you know? Yeah. Although, so the people who do know me know that like, I live a very, you know, I'm a mom with three kids. Like I'm going to bed 
and waking up and starting the hamster wheel of like, you know, as we all do basketball practice and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but people who know me really well, though, they know that I've got a lot of like stuff up there that I'm churning on and thinking about. So they were less surprised, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. The, the people who know you know that you've got a vivid imagination and yep. you're very talented yep. and you can put it on the page. The people who are more surface friends yep. are more surprised by the book. More surprised. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But nothing negative and no, at least nothing that anyone said. And I, I have to say, I was pretty careful that nothing seemed like too much like anything from my life. I mean, there, you know, it wasn't that hard, and but there were a few places where I like tweaked something. So it didn't seem like anything that was even remotely like a true anecdote. Um, you know, so, what? but even then, I doubt anyone would be. Yeah. You know what I think it is, though, Rebecca, honestly, is because I think it with some fiction writers, I think they put so much of themselves into characters and they put so much of themselves into stories that I think some people think that some fiction writers have a hard time keeping real life out of fiction. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I can see that for for sure, because you've got to find material somewhere. Right. So you how do you where does that you know, yeah, where's that line drawn? So, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's what it is. I think they expect you to put your real life thoughts and feelings and, and even your demons into, into fiction. And they don't think that you've got enough of that creative imagination to throw that into a story or even separate yourself from your worlds and, and be able to put something completely different on the page. And that's not true at all. So, Yeah. I think that's that's exactly what it is. Well, folks, I want to encourage you to go out and get The Last Applicant. Rebecca Hanover has been our guest, and uh, the book's amazing. It just is absolutely amazing. And going to take you on twists and turns that you had no idea you were going to go on. Uh, it's completely enthralling. And, Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. This was a blast. I, it went by in a flash because just you made it so fun, and um, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you as well. Folks, it's time now for us to lighten things up just a little bit. We'll bring in Beer City Bruisers. Time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Hello, hey, 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 hey. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time once again. The time we all look forward to is time for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals as we lighten things up a bit. And with that, we need a co-host. We bring in the co-host with the most, the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, how you doing? Oh, I'm feeling great. Uh, I had a successful show the other night and uh, body held up, hip held up. I'm feeling good. Good, good. Good to hear. I'm so I'm so glad, man, that that everything's going good after surgery. That uh, you're on the uh, you're on the uh, path to wellness and and uh, back in that ring and rolling around again. And it's good to yeah. hear. Good to hear. Yeah, able to make some money. It felt good. It was fun to entertain the fans again. I mean, it's my third match back, but uh, it doesn't feel. It feels. I feel great. I good. just. Good, good. Yeah. Good. And now that I changed my complete style, I don't wake up abused and sore. <laughs> <laughs> well, no diving over the top rope. That's that's yeah, probably yeah. the, you know, that's probably the, the good thing, right? 
Yeah, Mrs. Bruiser gets she when I watch stuff now to figure out what I want to do, she'll go, You can't do that. She can't do it. And there's certain people she won't let me watch anymore. Like, no more watching Mac Mick Foley, you know, even though I used to always watch him. No more. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I get crazy ideas. Yeah. No more watching Terry Funk because get those crazy ideas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You probably want to watch a guy like, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, Brooklyn Brawler. Who's having, uh, in, uh, Funny you bring his name up. Yes, I want to give him well wishes. Um, he is having shoulder replacement surgery today. Oh, um, is he? On his left shoulder. Yeah, I saw him at WrestleCon. I became good friends with him a couple years ago. We wrestled a match. And uh promoter told us to give us eight minutes. And, and he says, I don't know if I can give eight minutes. And I said, Brooklyn, I said, Brawler, just follow me, kid. I got you. And we, we ended up going 12 minutes. And he was so happy that we exchanged phone numbers. We became friends. And... Saw him at WrestleCon, and, and he's having surgery today. So positive vibes, good healing vibes for Brooklyn Brawler. Yeah. Hopefully his surgery goes well, and uh, he still looks amazing, though. He's oh, still does. in great shape, yeah. Yeah, he's got good genes. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. I said, what? I said, what are you? What are you most concerned about with the rehab? He goes, I just want to lift again. <laughs> I don't know when they're going to let me lift. <laughs> That's a well, brawler. Uh, yeah, well, he's sixty-three. <laughs> you know, though it gets it gets in your blood. You know that. I mean, you you know, oh, yeah, you, yeah. You, you you get with that. Uh, you start doing physical fitness, and and you you make a habit of getting in the gym every day, and you just you get used to it. I mean, gosh, look at Vince McMahon. He's still getting in the gym every day. Yeah, and he's what seventy-five. 75 76 something like that yeah uh, so i mean yeah. it's it, it becomes a habit so yeah so well wishes the brooklyn brawler hope the yeah. surgery goes well and healing is easy and fast for him absolutely absolutely well uh speaking of uh of the pro wrestling circuit and places you guys like to hang out at i have more bad news for you bruce i didn't want to I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start off the program with it so we get it out of the way okay <laughs> I, I don't know what it is with this place recently, but uh, of course on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, we, we talk about, and, and I didn't actually get this story. It was sent to me by a listener. Okay. I think it was Tony that sent this. Um, but, you know, we were talking about that Chinese joint in in Saugus, um, is it Massachusetts? Yeah, Kowloon. Yeah, Kowloon. Love Kowloon. Yeah. There's, there's been another incident there. Oh no! Yeah, I think this this isn't a repeat of that saying. This isn't a, about that same story. A man's died after a freak knife incident outside Massachusetts restaurant. A horrible tragedy. The family says Patrick Kenny Jr. was remembered by his family as a loving father, his husband, brother, son, and loyal friend to many. A Massachusetts man died Saturday after authorities say he suffered an accidental fatal knife wound at a restaurant parking lot. 42-year-old Patrick Kenny Jr. was found injured just after 9 p.m. local time in the Kowloon parking lot in Saugus. Oh, no. Yeah. It's a huge parking lot, too. It is. Well, it, that's what that's what you were saying. What, the, the lines are huge on Saturday nights, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you, Malonis, I think, lives 45 minutes from there, and he'll put his, his order in before he leaves his house. Whoa. And I'll still have to wait for it. Wow. Uh, Patrick yeah. Kenny Jr. later died at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. The incident appears to be accidental and no additional parties are believed to be involved, the Essex County District Attorney Office said in a statement. 
So he was probably walking back to his car, tripped and fell and stabbed himself. <laughs> well, we'll find out. I don't, yeah. I don't know that it was like that, but although police have not released additional details about his death, Kenny was reported wounded with a knife attached to the lanyard. He was, he, he did do that. See, damn it. He tripped and fell and stabbed himself. <laughs> wow. Okay. You're, you're psychic today. Uh, he reportedly was wounded with a knife attached to the lanyard he was wearing around his neck. Why do you have a knife around your neck, sir? <laughs> they give you a handy little bag to carry your silverware in. <laughs> Is he a three-year-old? <laughs> I guess, I don't, I don't. Did he have a note on his jacket, too, that said, you know, orange chicken, sesame chicken, and some lo mein? <laughs> I guess. Kenny was allegedly at the restaurant for a birthday party with about 30 other people at the time. The Essex County District Attorney's Office and the Saugus Police Department did not immediately respond to uh, request for comment. Bob Wong, whose family owns Kowloon, who probably thinks he's cursed now after the last month or so. I'll just send him a message. He's a real open guy, and uh, I'll ask him. Says I'll see he, if I get to the bottom of it. Is this cursed now? Come on. <laughs> he says he was devastated by the incident. Wong shared that some in the Kenny family were regulars at the restaurant, saying that they were going through a tough period and that the focus should really be on them. Uh, a message from People Magazine to the restaurant was not immediately returned, probably because Bob Wong said, what the hell does People Magazine want with, <laughs> with Kowloon? Uh, the man's family has said they believe what happened was a freak accident, according to the outlets. In a statement, they described what happened as a, to a horrible tragedy. Well, yeah, you attached silverware to the man's neck. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I'm not the brightest parent in the world, but I know that when I have my kids, and this guy isn't a kid, no. but I don't, I don't put sharp utensils around their neck. So growing up, they probably would think, you know, when I was a kid, dad never let us run with knives or put them around our neck. So if someone hands me a lanyard with a knife on it, I'm just going to be like, I'll put this in my pocket. <laughs> I don't need this. I'm about to say something controversial here in a little bit, so bear with me here. Okay. 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 Our family, here's a statement from them. Our family is mourning the loss of Patrick, focused on his wife, Lauren, and two young children, and they're trying to make sense of this horrific tragedy. Uh, Patrick was a loving father and husband, brother and son, and loyal friend to many. Okay. Nice statement. Yeah, he's a good guy. Now, here's the controversial statement, Bruiser. According to this, it says a GoFundMe was set up on behalf of the family and has raised over $15,000 as of Monday afternoon. Do you contribute to a GoFundMe for a guy who accidentally stabbed himself in the parking lot of a Chinese restaurant? No, no, I do not. <laughs> I, I'll show up and hand the family a couple bucks, you know, because he's got kids. But who? <sighs> I would pay a GoFundMe into hiring a private detective to see whose genius idea it was to put a knife on a lanyard. <laughs> I would, I'd sooner show up and give the money to Bob Wong. Yeah. Cause that's two tragedies in his parking lot in less than a month that he doesn't contribute to. Cause Kowloon's in a nice part of town. It's a great restaurant, you know, uh, it's a great bar. He's got comedy there. He's, I, he used to, during the pandemic, he did drive-in movies. You know, he does a lot for the community. This is his bad press for him because some guy was an idiot. 
Kenny's death remains under investigation by police in the district attorney's office. I don't think I think it's pretty much an open and shut case, but yeah. uh, they should arrest whoever put a damn knife on a lanyard. <laughs> right. That that's yeah, that's just I don't know. We move on, Bruiser. We go to Sarasota, Florida. Of course, we can't avoid Florida man on dumb crime, stupid criminals. It would never happen. A bystander is arrested after getting involved in a traffic stop, but in an unusual way. Okay. Sarasota deputies on a traffic stop soon turned away to deal with much bigger problems. On December 1st, Sarasota County deputy was finishing up a routine traffic stop, writing a written warning in lieu of giving a ticket when 69-year-old Alexandru Stan came up and began beating his fists against her window. The man said he lived in an apartment complex where the deputy was conducting the traffic stop and that the deputy needed to leave so that he could get out. (laughs) That's not entitled in any way, shape or form, is it? No, no, no. I would think a little bit of patience would probably be. Yeah. Yeah. You're waiting, what, 15 minutes tops? Yeah. There's there's no place you really need to be that you need to be tussling with police in order to get out of your parking lot. No, if you if you see the paddy wagon show up, that's when you walk up and go, "Hey, I gotta leave. Is this gonna take some time?" <laughs> but if it's just one cop, the only the only place yeah. you're leaving is jail. If you want to mess with the cops, <laughs> especially yeah. knocking on their window and demanding. Right. In contrast, the deputy told him that she was doing her job and that he needed to leave. Exactly. Yeah. Stan then refused. Like a little child, he sat down and. Oh, he did more than that, Bruce. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. He stepped chest to chest with the deputy, yelling and pointing his finger in her face. The deputy then grabbed his wrist and shirt and tried to put him in handcuffs. But Stan, being the big, big man he was, denied her going so far as to strike the deputy and try to break free. Oh, come on. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you wouldn't have done that if it was a male cop. No, not at all. No, and I'm not saying the female cop isn't doing her job she is she they, she need, they need to be respected to some male cops but this guy sounds like a chauvinistic pig yeah exactly backup soon arrived for the deputy however and then stan was up against the hood of the patrol car finally wearing his handcuffs once uh, backup <laughs> got there evidently he didn't realize that there's more than one cop on duty yeah mm-hmm. and you punched a cop so you are now Numero uno on their list. Yep. He's been charged with both resisting with violence and obstructing without violence and was released from Sarasota County Jail a day later on $500 bond. That was it. So so even though he wanted that she was parked and he he couldn't get out, he essentially lost the whole day. (laughs) Yeah. Guess what? He didn't get to where he was going. Exactly. Whatever he was in a rush to, he's still really late for. He is. He He never got there. Never got there. Um, you remember uh, the Superman movies, the Christopher Reeve movies? Oh yeah, you remember my the the villains from the Phantom Zone? <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> these, that totally is. These guys look like the villains from the Phantom Zone, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're going to. Um, <laughs> They are, and they're all wearing black, too. They all are wearing black. <laughs> they all have the, per- the two men have the perfect beards for it. She's yep. kind of attractive. A little bit. Uh, she, but she definitely kind of fits the uh, 
the the female uh, villain in in super was it Superman three? Oh, yeah. that, that, no, Superman two. Superman, Superman two, two. That's right. Superman yeah, because that's where um, Freeze randomly rips off the S and throws it. Yeah, <laughs> remember? It's like, and he does the the reverse switching when he gets in the pod. Yep. Yeah, and then they yeah. all lose their powers, and yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, and there's your synopsis of Superman two. <laughs> we just saved your money. There you go. Well. It's still very good. Christopher yeah. Reeve is a fantastic Superman. Yes. You know, there's a Superman 78 comic book out now. I do. Yeah. Yep. They're, they're planning on doing all of them. Um, one with the old man. And then the, the 78, they have the 66 one. And then they're going to come out with the 89 one. Oh, really? With Keaton. Yeah. Huh. That's the plan. Oh, yeah. The, the Batman 89 has been out for, for some time. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. I yeah. know they want to do each individual one, but they're leaving out Clooney and um, although from Clooney on, they're leaving out. Oh. Okay. All right. Uh, three are three people are accused. The villains from the Phantom Zone are accused of uh, <laughs> of leading deputies on a chase and damaging a patrol vehicle. We continue with the we continue with the uh, crimes against cops uh, bent here. The Berkeley County. Uh, we're going to Berkeley County. Uh, South Carolina, in case I didn't tell oh, you that. okay. Uh, the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office says the three villains from the Phantom Zone that I showed Bruiser uh, face charges after leading deputies on a chase in St. Stephen and damaging their patrol vehicles. Brandon Lee Potter was charged with failure to stop for blue lights, resisting arrest, giving false information to police and driving under suspension. William Derek Thomas was charged with evading arrest and malicious injury to property. And Ashley Cherie Hart was charged with evading arrest. Deputies said she had an outstanding warrant as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she's a real gem. Yeah, no innocence in this deal. No. Deputies that's why were, they were in the Phantom Zone for so long. That's right. That's why they were trapped in the Phantom Zone. They probably just got out, and now they're, they're tormenting uh, Henry Cavill. Yeah, they're trying to get Superman to come back, and that's he's right. not having it. That's right. Deputies were patrolling around Butterbean Road in St. Stephen. How would you like to live on Butterbean Road? I would love it. Yeah. I, well, I want, you know what I want? I want Butterbean the Boxer to live on Butterbean Road. I do, too. Maybe that's why they named it Butterbean Road. Maybe he's secretly hiding out down there. Maybe. Have you seen recent pictures of him? He's not big anymore. No? No, he's lost a lot of weight. Looks great. Looks really? fantastic. Yeah. Well, good for him. I was a little worried about Butterbean. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. No, he looks great. He's good. in great shape. So. Good. Well, deputies were patrolling around Butterbean Road in St. Stephen when they said they attempted to stop the trio from driving a vehicle with defective equipment. Interesting. Potter, yeah. the driver, did not stop, and Thomas began to throw things from the vehicle, damaging the hood, windshield, grill, and radiator of one patrol vehicle and causing a flat tire on another patrol vehicle. I guess it's one way to get the cops to stop. I just like, they probably got in the car, and the girl went, what are all these bricks in the back seat for? And the guy's like, he'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of pick one up and chuck it out the window, see what happens. <laughs> Potter lost control of the vehicle and hit a tree. Thomas and Hart ran into the woods where a canine unit later found them because you can't ever run from the canine unit. No, you cannot. They will find you. They will bite you and they will hold you. Yes, they will. Not lovingly either. Oh, no, no. No, no, they, no, don't, no. they don't hold you <laughs> I've lovingly. I've been held by them. No, no, no. No, no, they, they hold you quite viciously. Potter was caught running into the woods. Deputies said he lied to them about his identity, but they found his driver's license in the wrecked vehicle because... 
That's... My name is General Zod. <laughs> <laughs> kneel before Zod. No, you kneel because the cop dog has your balls. <laughs> and we found your ID right here. That's right. You are not from Krypton. You're from <laughs> South Carolina. That's right. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, I don't know if you heard about the recent American terrorist plot that happened over the weekend. No, I know that they're warning us that it could be coming because of everything that's happening with Hamas, oh, no, no, Israel, no, no, no. Ukraine, and Russia. No, Bruiser, not against us. The one that we committed. No, oh, no, huh? Bruiser, oh. I thought you were more on top of things. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sorry. I had a show this weekend. I was uh, torn no, away no, from media. No, I realize. I realize you're a busy man, but this. And in the locker rooms, they don't really discuss terrorism. This, Bruiser, was huge international news. Evidently, there was an American terrorist plot against Cuba. Really? Yeah. Wasn't that called Bay of Pigs? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, way back when, sure. But this, my friend, this just happened over the weekend. Okay. I'm curious. This terrorist plot happened in a kind of a sneaky way. Are we allowed in Cuba? I thought we couldn't go to Cuba. Well, during the Obama administration, they opened up the borders a little bit, but I think they've closed back down since then. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought there was a travel ban. But anyways, yeah, well, there, if there you're is. a terrorist, it doesn't matter. That's right. And when you're a terrorist, you have to think of sneaky ways to get into Cuba. Because, you, yeah. yeah, right? Like well, a big statue of Castro and you hide in it until they all go to sleep. <laughs> the Trojan Castro. <laughs> um, no, no, no. Th- this... This terrorist was thinking, but not with his head. Okay. He was thinking with his Baywatch head. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cuba thwarted his, uh, this uh, terrible, terrible terrorist plot by a South Florida man. Of course, you know, we're going to Florida. Yeah. Who arrived by jet ski. Oh, good for him. Good for him. This according to Cuba's state-run media. That's right, folks. State-run media in Cuba says there was a terrorist attack by an American on a jet ski. I'm so curious as to what his plan was. (laughs) We go to Havana, where Cuba said late on Saturday it had thwarted a terrorist plot hatched in neighboring South Florida according to a report broadcast on state-run media, after a man allegedly arrived on the island by jet ski to commit acts of violence. Because <laughs> that's, that's the best way to do it. I have a quick math question for you, and I know math is hard, so it's, it's hard for yes, both of us. So yes. Let's try and figure this out. How many miles to the gallon for a tank of gas on a jet ski? It's 90 miles from South Florida to Cuba. I actually kind of know the answer to this because of a uh, Dateline mm-hmm. show I watched. There was a gentleman in uh, – now we're going over to Seattle, to Washington. Okay. He was a citizen there. He committed a bunch of crimes, faked his own death. Okay. No, I'm sorry. did not fake his death. Committed a bunch of crimes under this name, killed a guy, stole his identity, moved to Canada. Okay. While in Canada, commits all these crimes, kills a bunch of people – Goes back to America, knowing there's a warrant for himself, turns himself in. That way they can't prove that he did it because his real identity is in prison. Well, this other identity that committed the crimes. Well, they figured it out. It was him. 
He got from Canada into the United States. It's a 90-mile trek by jet ski. So the officers, when they found out he had purchased this jet ski, the first question they asked the jet ski owner was, how many miles to the gallon can you get? Because we want to find out where he would have ran out of gas. Yeah. To either fill up or leave the jet ski. And they tossed a general number. So the police went there and lo and behold, guess what they found? What's the jet ski out of gas. Really? Yep. And then they were able to track, okay, he's in America again. They were able to find him, catch him and all that. So I, I think a guy could go to Cuba and I don't think he can come back. He has to fuel up, but I think he can go 90 miles on a jet ski. So where do you think he was going to fuel up when he when he got to Cuba? That's the thing. I don't, yeah, that's the question. Is, is uh, You have to have an inside source to fuel up. It's not like you can pull up to a gas station after you commit these crimes. Right, unless it was a one-way, one-way trip. Let's find out. Let's find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Cuba said late on Saturday it had thwarted a, t- a terrorist plot hatched in neighboring South Florida, according to a report broadcast on state-run media after a man allegedly arrived on the island by jet ski to commit acts of violence. The resulting investigation, which state-run media said was still underway, alleged that a plot was tied to at least two groups, Nueva Nacion Cubana and La Nueva Nacion Cubana and Armas, which... Cuba has labeled it as uh, terrorist entities. Reuters was unable to contact either of the groups late on Saturday. The report said one of the men it had arrested who appeared on the program, but was, or, but whose identity was unclear was armed with several handguns, ammo clips and ammo. The report alleged the man who is a Cuban residing in Florida had entered Cuba alleged or illegally on a jet ski with a Florida registration, which he then abandoned in a mangrove swamp on the island's north coast after, before making his way overland to Cienfuegos in south-central Cuba. Uh, the man then attempted to recruit others to assist in commit, committing acts of violence, arson, and vandalism before his eventual arrest. That, according to the report, state-run media said several other Cubans residing both in South Florida and in Cuba were under investigation for their involvement in the alleged plot. The allegations come just two days after Cuba published a list of more than 84 nationals and entities that accused of terrorism, including influencers, many longtime dissidents who reside in the United States, and a candidate for mayor of Florida's Miami-Dade County. <laughs> no one. Deep. No one is safe. That's right. The two groups identified in Saturday's TV report appear on the list published by Cuba earlier this week and are labeled as criminal organizations based in the United States that organize, finance, and execute actions against the security of the Cuban state. With that in mind, Bruiser, does this seem plausible? No, not at all. How weird is it, too, that terrorist organizations have media people? Right. Yeah. Well, like no, I always no, 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 no. Wait that- a minute. I- I'm going to walk that back. Al Qaeda has one. Hamas has one too. Hamas has one. Yeah. Yeah. This group obviously does because they reached out for comment. <laughs> most most large terrorist organizations do have a media spokesperson or a media representative because Which they. Is- they don't, they don't see themselves as terrorist organizations. They see themselves as political organizations. Oh, I know that. I'm yeah. just saying like, hey, we have to find these leaders. Follow the social media guy. <laughs> he's getting his, re- or his orders from somewhere. 
<laughs> well, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they, yeah, they don't. They see themselves as legitimate organizations. They're labeled as terrorist organizations by by outside influences. Okay. So even um, uh, Hezbollah, Hezbollah has a has a um, has a major spokesperson. Okay, so because they don't see themselves as the villains. No, 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 no. They see themselves. No, they, as, they think they're doing it for freedom or whatever their beliefs yes, are. Yes, they they look at themselves as liberators. Yeah, yeah. So of course they have media spokespeople that you go to. It just, it just always blew my mind. Like with this war going on in Israel, oh, Hamas just released this social media footage. Like, wait, what? <laughs> Follow them then. <laughs> That's the guy doing it. <laughs> well, no, not not necessarily. They they actually hire people who have college degrees in in journalism and in public relations. Could you take that job? Could I take that job? I called you up today and says, you know, Cruiser, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars a year. You're going to run our our Facebook page, you're also going to do a podcast for us. Would you do it? Absolutely not, no. Neither would I. But, but there are people that work for um, the American side of, uh, I forget what the name of the channel is now. It's the um, Arabic CNN. But they, they, oh, okay. they broadcast, and I can't think of the name of the channel. Somebody somebody will email me and tell me what it is. Um, and they they broadcast many pro-terrorist messages okay and and but see that's that's just a perspective to them so they they broadcast it and you have you have many i'm trying to choose my words carefully here you have many legitimate journalists who work for that channel wow so crazy it's um again it's about perspective yeah. You know, it's not uh, it's not my perspective. Yeah, what's that saying? Um, no matter how good you are, you're always the villain in someone's story. Yeah. 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 So, there you go. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> this is an absolutely bizarre story. You know, we're, we're in the winter months here, at least in the north. It snowed here this past week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, a little yes. bit. We got a little trace of snow. Um, the one thing we, we don't allow here in Minnesota is chains on your tires. Really? Yes. You, you're not allowed to put chains on your tires because it busts up the roadways. Wow. See, that was just a common thing in Wisconsin. Yeah. Now, see, some northern states allow you to put chains on your tires, but there are there are other states that don't allow it anymore because of the destructive yeah. tendencies of chains. Okay. This state, not so much that we're going to right now. In fact... Washington state still allows you to put chains on your tires because winter not as prevalent. I mean, it's, you still get snow, but, and especially this year, you're getting snow in, in Washington state. One driver was busted for using a USB cord as an impromptu chain, chain, I'm sorry, tire <laughs> chain accessory. And it was deemed not accessible, not acceptable rather. No, it's not. No, you can't use a U.S. And I'm going to show you a picture of this bruiser. You're going to laugh your silly ass off when you see this. Oh, jeez. Now, there are fixes for well, tire how do we know chains. that's not an electric car? That's how he charges it. Oh, come on. <laughs> there are certain ways to fix a tire chain. That is not it. And can you describe? The best is he also has. So you can see it looks like a, two wallet chains. 
mm-hmm. with a bike chain connected by the USB cord, and the USB cord is wrapped around something that you'd put in a bra to hide your bra straps. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. It is a mess. Uh, like it's, it's a, it's creative, but a mess. And there's no way that would work. The chains are too no. far apart. Yeah, and they're they're wallet chains. <laughs> like they're not chains. <laughs> right, right. And in that that little. You know how flimsy a USB cord is. Yeah, and that little bra thing is plastic. That's going to snap right away. Yeah, it's it's ne- it's never going to hold. I don't know why somebody would put that on there, even if you're just going to go a couple miles. Yeah. Uh, we go to Hayek, Washington. When driving in winter weather on the freeway, it's not only essential to carry tire chains, at least in Washington, but make sure ahead of time that they're the right size for the vehicle's tires. A driver in Washington State was given a hefty fine Thursday when it was discovered that they not only had improper fitting chains, but they used a rather dangerous method to fix the issue. That's in quotes, which would be a USB cord. Washington State Patrol troopers spotted the vehicle along Interstate 90 and the, I believe this is the Snoqualmie Pass on Thursday after or evening, rather, as heavy snow fell in the mountains. This driver had chains that were too small and used a USB cord to remedy the situation, according to Trooper Rick Johnson, who posted on X, and he said, not acceptable. (laughs) Not acceptable at all. It was not cheap either. Johnson told Fox Weather the driver was given a $500 ticket for not carrying proper chains, though like their cord, they were not charged (laughs) It was one of the many traffic issues troopers in Washington State Department of Transportation personnel faced with a heavy snowstorm hitting the popular travel link between western and eastern Washington, as many other drivers ignored the traction tire and chain warnings, too. At one point, the entire pass was closed for more than three hours this last Thursday evening due to multiple spinouts. Come on, folks, you can do better than this, WISDOT officials said on their Snoqualmie Pass X account. Yes, there is one. Uh, (laughs) We are closed eastbound I-90 at milepost 47 west of the summit due to vehicles not obeying the traction tire requirements and spinning out and blocking lanes. Please obey the tire traction requirements and know before you go. Wistot officials said Snoqualmie Pass received about 15 inches of snow on Thursday night. Oh, geez, that's a lot of snow. I don't know that you should travel in 15 inches of snow. No, you let the plows get out there for a bit. Yeah, especially on a mountain pass. More snow was on the way over the weekend. This past weekend, as winter storm warnings forecast up to 8 to 12 inches of new snow at Snoqualmie Pass uh, with a new atmospheric river before a change to a period of freezing rain on Sunday morning. Uh, It was just dangerous sledding all around in Washington State this past weekend. So, yeah, a USB cord, not going to cut it. It just wasn't going to cut it this past weekend. So, there you go. <laughs> like I said, how do we know it was an electrical car and you had to charge it? Oh, come on. That's not how you charge an electric <laughs> car. Everybody knows you just put your tongue on a battery, then put your finger on the terminal. <laughs> uh, speaking of cars... We will uh, move on to Illinois, where a Kia dealership brought a woman to tears after deviating from its own policy to call 911 and having her wrongly arrested over a $30,000 cashier's check. Yeah, a little bit of an issue here. Yeah, a little bit. A black woman filed a racial discrimination lawsuit against a Kia dealership in Highland Park, Illinois, on October 13th. Sade Crockett 
was arrested at the dealership after being falsely accused of using a fraudulent check to purchase a vehicle on March 10th. Crockett was at the McGrath Kia located on 250 Skokie Valley Road in Highland Park to purchase a vehicle with a cashier's check gifted to her by her 82-year-old uncle, Enoch Graves. Now, according to her attorneys, Hampton and Hampton LLP, Crockett and her uncle first went to the 5th Third Bank in Chicago and obtained a cashier's check from Graves' account, which was legitimate and intended as a birthday gift to his niece. The duo explained to the bank tellers that they intended to purchase a vehicle with the cashier's check, and they even called the dealership from the bank to ensure a cashier's check would be proper payment for the intended purchase. Okay. So far, so, so far they're going the right, the right route. That's right. The clerks expressed that the bank could accommodate them without issue and that cashier's checks were less susceptible to fraud than personal checks and would give the recipient additional assurances that the check would clear. That's that, that according to the lawsuit, adding that the dealership approved the cashier's check made out in the amount of $30,710.05 as an acceptable form of payment. The dealership also advised Crockett that she would need not need to bring her uncle with her to make the purchase. And she dropped him off at home before heading to the dealership. However, upon arriving, the 36-year-old said she noticed a sense of unwelcomeness from the predominantly white staff. Nonetheless, she test drove a used Chevy Blazer LT. See, that's your first problem. It was a Chevy Blazer LT. <laughs> Yeah, well, her first problem was she was going to a Kia, Kia dealership. Yeah, and then the second problem, it was a yeah. Chevy Blazer. Uh, and decided she would purchase the 2021 vehicle and give the dealer her cashier's check. She also explained that she'd called earlier with the bank, but when the dealership called Fifth Third to verify the check, they failed to call the same branch and were told the check was likely fraudulent without adequate investigation or due diligence by the bank. Way to go. Yeah. The dealership then called 911 and asked for the Highland Park Police Department without bothering to call the correct bank or the right, the right branch rather where the check was drawn and Crockett was arrested despite her pleas to explain what happened according to lakeandmchenryscanner.com McGrath Kia deviated from its own policy and practiced to return checks to customers and decline the sale when the validity of a check may be in question. McGrath Kia deviated from this policy and practice based solely upon Crockett's race and instead called the police for Crockett to be arrested. That according to oh, the lawsuit. Yeah. After being told by the bank that Crockett was not a customer of the bank and that she could not verify the check because the computers were down, the officer replied that the people from those neighborhoods were probably using Crockett as a tool to purchase the vehicle with a fraudulent check. Okay. Okay. Sade was wrongfully discriminated against based upon her race while trying to purchase or lawfully purchase a vehicle gifted to her by her family member, her attorney. Uh, Halil Hampton told McClatchy News Service. Crockett was arrested and charged with felony forgery, causing her to be brought to tears and to have a nervous breakdown, according to the lawsuit. She wasn't vindicated until several months later on July 18th, when the Lake County State's Attorney's Office finally determined that the check was not fraudulent, no crime had been committed, and all of the charges were dropped. Sorry it took so long, Crockett was told by prosecutors, according to her complaint. <laughs> Sorry it took so long. Our bad. Yep. We just made you go through all this crap. 
Not even a, hey, we'll give you $1,000 off the car. <laughs> no. Nope. Sorry, our bad. Just a whoops. So long. Whoops. We didn't mean it. <laughs> this case represents a disturbing pattern of racial discrimination and what can be, and what can happen rather when banking while black, BWB. <laughs> There is no data on how frequent, uh, frequently the police are called on customers who are making legitimate everyday transactions, noted a press release from Hampton and Hampton LLP. However, racial profiling in our community needs to stop. Our client has suffered extreme emotional distress from the incident and has been unable to find gainful employment due to media headlines with both her name and image. Still visible on the internet today, Shade Crockett needs justice, and she deserves to be treated with both dignity and respect. Yeah, they should at least offer her a job. Yeah, yeah. The lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois and seeks compensatory and punitive damages for the wrongful arrest. WKM Automotive Incorporated, McGrath Kia, Fifth Third Bank, the city of Highland Park, and two police officers who arrested Crockett are also named in the lawsuit. Yeah, they're all going to lose. They're, they have definitely have mud on their face. Most definitely. Most definitely. We move on. Now, I got to ask you, Bruiser, you and I both have some dental, dentally challenged issues in our, in our <laughs> past. Uh, what's the weirdest way you've ever knocked out a tooth or taken out a tooth? Uh, besides the chair that knocked out my two front teeth. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that one. Yeah, I mean, but was that voluntary? No. Okay. No, that was involuntary. Voluntarily, uh, attached a my son's tooth to the back of my daughter's bicycle to rip it out. Okay, and that's a little extreme. Yep. I have a story here where a video shows that Palatka teacher. Knocks out a student's front tooth, and it's a very unusual way on how it happened. Okay. Are you ready for this? I didn't know that's part of a teacher's job nowadays, but okay. (laughs) Well, they're doing everything nowadays, Bruiser. They've got many (laughs) jobs. Uh, We go to Palatka, Florida, where a shocking video shows a Palatka gym teacher chuck a basketball at a sixth grader and then elbow him in the mouth, which knocked out his front tooth. He was playing hard. <laughs> yeah, he was. He went hard. You in don't the come into my zone, punk. <laughs> <laughs> Palatka police said that 41-year-old James Bellamy was arrested on child abuse and battery charges Monday after security cameras at Putnam Academy of Arts and Sciences showed the incident. Seeing him do it to my son on video, that's when I was like, oh my God, my baby is 12, Tony Foster, his mother said. I'm angry. I'm still angry. But my thing is, why? There is no way you could have got that upset. You want to bet he did it? <laughs> and the teacher responded with, don't tell him to bring that game into my yard. <laughs> <laughs> the security video shows her son first hit Bellamy while playing basketball. According to the report, Bellamy said, oh, my God. He said, get your black ass out on the court. What is with the racial stuff? I don't know. Wow. Then the 41-year-old gym teacher threw a basketball. The 12-year-old ducks, and the teacher struck him in the mouth with his elbow. (laughs) That's some rage. This guy got picked on a lot as a kid and just decided to carry it over. Yep. According to the report, the teacher told police it was not intentional. 
What? How is that not intentional? You threw the ball at him, and when he ducked, you walked up and elbowed him. But the teacher was fired on Monday, thank God. Yes. Action News Jax, Action News Jax, reached out to the Putnam County School District for comment, and they said, we are all terribly concerned that this incident occurred as we want the best for all Putnam County students, no matter what school their families choose for them. And then added Putnam County School District only oversees the charter for Putnam Academy of Arts and Sciences. The district is not involved in their policies or hiring processes. Also, we do not keep personnel records on any of the charter school employees. In other words, please don't blame us for what happened. We don't want to get sued. And then there's the asterisk. Your kid's going to come here. He better be balling. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Your kid better know how to ball. Uh, Foster said the blow knocked out her son's front tooth and chipped the other front tooth. Doctors are going to attempt to repair it this coming Thursday, but said if they can't, her son will need to wait until he's 21 years old for a fake tooth. Oh, yeah, because then they stop growing. Yeah. Yeah. Bellamy was released on how much bond, Bruiser, on this past Tuesday? $1,500. Go higher. He knocked a kid's tooth out. Five grand. 6500 bucks. Oh, okay. I still don't think it's enough. I don't either. That tooth's going to cost 6500 bucks. Yeah. Uh, he was released on $6,500 bond on Tuesday with a no-contact order. Foster told Action News Jax, Action News Jax, Robert Grant. new action movie coming out. Yeah, it is, Action News Jackson. Uh, Robert Grant, that uh, the Department of Children and Families reached out to her with questions about the incident. Uh, like what? What questions would you possibly have other than that asshole elbowed my kid in the, in the mouth? Well, it could be, you know, how, were you were you winning the game? Were you losing the game? <laughs> was my son schooling you and you got upset? Yeah. How small is your penis? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's... Do you, do you not know how to ball properly? Yeah. Um, you know, how many kids beat you up when you were a child? <laughs> how bad were you bullied? I don't know. Let's move on, shall we? Yes. Uh, we're just a couple stories away from the not safe for work portion of our program. Um, but first, we need to actually, we're just one story away from not, our not safe for work program or program. Listen to me, <laughs> not safe for work portion of our, our program as I struggle. Um, this bruiser qualifies as being the most Floridian of Floridian stories, I think, of the year so far. Okay. As we go to Florida, a man tries to steal a Waffle House tattoo. <laughs> you can't make it up. He tries to what? Steal a Waffle House tattoo? Yeah, yeah. Like cut it off someone's body? <laughs> no, he got the tattoo and he tried to walk away with it. Oh, okay. Well, tried, <laughs> tried to steal. That doesn't work that way. First of all, he walked into a tattoo parlor and said, I need me a Waffle House tattoo. <laughs> Right there, the tattooer should be like, ah, something's wrong with this guy. Yeah, you're the higher drunk. You got to be high on meth to get a Waffle House tattoo. Oh, God, yeah. And I like Waffle House, but I'm not tattooing it on my body. Oh, I love me some Waffle House, but there's nothing that can make me get it on my body for the rest of my life. No. No, sir. <laughs> there's nothing that good about Waffle House. No. No. I would never want to go into a Waffle House and pull up my sleeve and go, bam, what do I get for it? <laughs> 
First of all, we're going to meet Max Alexander Krekant. He's a 33, he's 33 years old, <laughs> Bruiser. He should know better. There's drugs involved. I'm telling you right now. He's in Florida. There's got to be drugs. First of all, I'm going to show you a picture of this, this doofus. He looks like uh, he looks like a methed out, um, what's his oh name, from gosh. Fast and Furious. Yeah, he never, he never grew up. He looks like, like he thinks he's cool in that picture. He's like, yeah, oh, motocross god. I got my metal militia hat, and my motocross gloves, and he looks like never a, had never seen a girl naked. He looks like Hopefully. a meth, methed out Vin Diesel, doesn't he? Yeah, yes, he does. Yeah. Uh, Max Alexander Kretchant, I believe it is, or Kretchant, or Kretchkant, Kretchkant, I think is what it is. Uh, the thirty-three-year-old Floridian was arrested Saturday after he allegedly refused to pay for a $250 tattoo. That's the real crime here. $250 for a Waffle House tattoo. Yeah. That he received from the Ink God shop in St. Petersburg. (laughs) (laughs) Kretschkant was reportedly under the influence. No. No. When he got the Waffle House logo tattooed on his right calf. See, I think what he was thinking was he could really go for some Waffle House, and he's going to dine and dash. And when he walked in, all he could say is Waffle House. So the tattoo artist was like, okay, put the logo on him. And he thought he was in the restaurant. <laughs> so he's like, now it's time to dine and dash. <laughs> well, the restaurant chain's emblem is yellow and black. Kretschkant's tattoo, about five inches wide, was gray and black. Since what? He, yep, since he did not want to pay an additional $100 for yellow ink. <laughs> so he was doing it on the cheap. That according he was to... walking away anyways, why not, you know? Yeah, you might as well go full tilt if you're not yeah. going to pay for it. Yeah. yeah. That was according to Ink God's owner, Neil Marcus. When it came time to pay for the tattoo, Kretschkant, who looks like a methed out Vin Diesel... Refused all options to satisfy his debt, according to cops. Wait, what other options are there? Cash credit? Like, what else do they... Drop to your knees, pay it off that way? (laughs) Take take us to Waffle House? Yep. A police frisk of Kretschkant turned up only $6 and a driver's license in his bag and nothing on his person. So he couldn't even pay for anything at Waffle House. No. This guy's just a loser all around. Charged with theft, Kretschkant, who lives in nearby Clearwater, bonded, of course he does, bonded, <laughs> bonded out of jail uh, after posting $150. Oh, so he has that. Who gave him the 150 Yeah, that's what I'm curious about. Yeah. He has pleaded not guilty to the misdemeanor count. Well, he could come up with 150 bucks to get out of jail. Why couldn't he come up with the 350 to get the yellow... Waffle House. Maybe his, it's a bond. Yeah. Maybe it's a bondsman he went through. What bondsman would go? You have six bucks. I'll let you out. <laughs> I don't know. They'd be like, "What'd he, you? What'd you steal?" He oh, had, that's a sweet Waffle House tattoo. <laughs> but it's gray. Um, you you still have to have ten percent for a bail bondsman. That's fifteen bucks. Yeah, he only had six on him. <laughs> that had to be the stupidest bail bondsman in the world. Oh yeah. But a big, big, big Waffle House fan. <laughs> he had to be like, dude, I get my check from Waffle House on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pick up an extra shift. <laughs> By the way, Kretschkant pleaded not guilty to the misdemeanor count. 
I don't know how you get out. Uh, of this yeah, thing. how do you plead not guilty to that? Like, <laughs> um, sir, can we see your calf? So what's that? <laughs> wow, that get there. That must have <gasps> happened while I was in jail. I drew it when I was in a cell. <laughs> that was my jail tattoo. I'm in now with the with the Waffle House posse. <laughs> In addition to his fresh Waffle House art piece of evidence, <laughs> Kretschkant has several other tattoos, including a black and white tribute to Insane Clown Posse on his forearm. Oh, of course, he's a juggalo. Yeah, he is. Marcus said customers occasionally try to walk out without paying for tattoos, but that usually occurs during spring break, not the holiday season. <laughs> How fun. The guy needs a security guard in the shop. I, well, what do you do when they try to run out? You just beat them? Oh, yeah. Tattoo something across their forehead. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like a giant dick? I mean, what do you... How do you... How do you if the guy's going to walk out without paying, what do you do to the guy in order to, you know... I'd remove the tattoo. I'd tackle and remove the tattoo. I guess, yeah. I don't know. I'll have to talk to some of my tattoo buddies. See what happens. Yeah. Get locked down on. yeah, see what they do. I mean, that. I mean, there has to be something. Uh, it's time now for the not safe for work portion of Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. So okay. that means only one thing. If you're at work, turn down your listening device or put in your earbuds if they're not in already. If you're at home and you got the kids or the grandkids around, shame on you. I don't know why you've done that up till now, but... <laughs> But uh, get the kiddies out of the room and then put in your earbuds or turn your listening device down low. It's time now for us to get a little naughty on the program. <laughs> we're going to go to, uh, where are we going to with this one? Well, we're going to prison is where we're going. We're going to Florida <laughs> again. We're back in Florida. Of course we are. In prison, though. In prison. Uh, a man is arrested and jailed while wearing the I just got out of prison shirt. <laughs> I'm just forewarning you, I guess. I guess this one isn't so bad. However... Does he have to cross out, I just got out, but I just went back? Yeah, like, I just... <laughs> yeah, there's like a little cross out on... You know, he just keeps <laughs> writing it on his shirt over and over again. A man wearing a shirt declaring, I just got out of prison, was locked up anew on Sunday after police responded to a 911 call about a male suspect entering a parked car and stealing a wallet. 46-year-old Michael Gordon pleaded no contest yesterday to a misdemeanor obstruction charge and was sentenced to five days in custody and fined $500, according to a Florida court record. The criminal court against Gordon stemmed from his refusal to identify himself to deputies probing the reported auto break-in. A portable fingerprint scanner was used to identify Gordon. Wow, that's neat technology. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Who told cops to call my lawyer. <laughs> I didn't know he had one on retainer. That's nice. Gordon's shirt accurately reflected his most recent scrape with the law. Gordon, who is listed as a transient, was convicted in late July of trespass after he unsuccessfully tried to enter a Dodge van parked in a St. Petersburg lot. Originally charged with attempted burglary, which is a felony, Gordon copped to a reduced misdemeanor count and was sentenced to 115 days in jail, which he had already spent behind bars following his late March arrest. When he posed for a December 3rd uh, booking photo, Gordon had changed out of his prison shirt into his <laughs> orange jail smock. 
Oh. Is I just got out of prison shirt. Yep. Gordon's rap sheet includes convictions for burglary, narcotics possession, trespass, theft, prowling, criminal mischief, and obstructing police. And I don't have a picture in his I just got out of prison shirt bruiser, but I do have a picture of him for you. There you go. That's the guy who had Oh, he's owned. a real winner. He's a winner. Yeah. He does not have the I just got out of prison shirt on, but he looks like the brain from Pinky and the Brain. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, you know he kind of looks like a little bit. You got to squint your eyes in order to figure it out. He kind of looks like Chris Kattan from Saturday Night Live. Oh yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now we'll get into the naughty. I I, I forgot I had that one story there. That was kind of naughty. It, it involved it involved removing clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He had to take his clothes off. So, um, and then get some cherry wine. That's an old '80s song. Um, boy, that's a stretch, wasn't it? Uh, okay, now this one, this one, not so much funny as horrid. Okay. This is why it's not safe for work. It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible uh, story. I, I debated not even reading this one, but it's one of those things. You need to be on the lookout for this man. Okay. This man, again, we're in Florida. A lot of debauchery in Florida. Oh, yeah, it's Florida. But, but this isn't good debauchery. This is uh, you need to need to have it chopped off debauchery. Oh, okay. Yeah. A man is charged with horrid canine crimes. Oh, yeah. Nope. He needs to the, pay the price. The suspect traded vile videos and sought out group sex uh, after allegedly distributing a series of bestiality videos in a private group oh. chat. Yeah. That's why I say he needs it chopped off. A Florida man met with an undercover female detective and sought to arrange group sexual intercourse with the woman and his dog, according to court records. Yeah. I don't I don't get that thinking. Like I've never once woken up and looked at Ziggy and went, Hey, how you doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like No. That this that doesn't in my mind I can't process this. No, I, I can't either. This is just disgusting. Yeah. Police were monitoring a social media public chat room known as Tampa K9 Knot. What? And I can't believe there's more than one person involved in it. Yeah, and knot is in like a knot, like in a rope. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier this year, when a cop was contacted by someone using the handle Loverboy in a subsequent private message, the chat room user sent six bestiality videos to the undercover. I think he's guilty. Yeah. Yeah. I feel bad for the undercover cops because they have to watch that. Yeah, they do. Yeah. The suspect and arrest affidavit alleges subsequently added the woman to a private group chat on the same social media platform. And he proceeded to send multiple bestiality videos in a group chat with other members. According to investigators, the man identified as 33-year-old Jeremy Mark Lavera met last week with the undercover agent at a public park along with his German short-haired pointer dog named Remy. Lavera, cops say, sought to return to his nearby St. Petersburg home and engage in group sex with the undercover and his canine. Instead, Lavera was arrested on 15 counts of sexual activity involving animals as well as two other felonies. Each of the 15 charges corresponds to a separate video allegedly provided by Lavera. In some clips, cops say Lavera's dog is seen engaged in vile acts with Lavera and unidentified women. It's just so wrong. 
This guy needs to be thrown. Throw, lock him up and throw away the key. Throw him under the jail. Uh, Lavera was freed from jail last Wednesday evening after posting bond, believe it or not. A judge barred him from having contact with any animals or any chat rooms. According to his LinkedIn page, Lavera works as a security officer with the Tampa-based Hillsborough County Public School System. Yeah, no. Yeah, get him. Why is he able to bond out? I don't get that. State records show that he has a security officer license that expires in March of 2025. Lavera also appears to have a statewide firearms license. This is so wrong. Yeah. Lavera moved to Florida from suburban New York City, where he graduated from Mercy College with a bachelor's degree in legal studies in general. Uh, he His LinkedIn entry notes that in 2019, he paid $241,000 for his St. Petersburg home, which he co-owns with his father, who's a retired New York Police Department detective who lives elsewhere in Florida. So this this guy knew what he was doing was illegal. He's from the, the legal oh, yeah. community. Yeah, he he completely knows what he did was wrong. Yeah, this guy and he's going to work the system because of all his connections. I bet this this he needs to go to jail for a very long time. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, he completely knew what he did was wrong and tried to circumvent the system, anyways. Yeah, and in the process, hurt a very innocent animal or animals. Mm-hmm. Probably plural. It's never just one. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's multiple. It's multiple. Let's move on to our last story today. A man shoots a woman performing oral sex and admits to murdering someone to his father. <laughs> this is just... We're this ended, wasn't that good, huh? <laughs> no, and believe it or not, we ended here in oh. Minneapolis. Do you think you went, oh, oh, I'm going to shoot. <sighs> it, wrong. didn't tell you what I was going to shoot. Oh, bruiser, <laughs> come on. We ended here in Minneapolis today where a man has been charged with murder after killing a woman who allegedly made him feel suspicious while performing oral sex, according to charges. If you're feeling you sus feel suspicious, yeah. Yeah, that, that's not the feeling you're supposed to get after that. It's, like, has uh, he never had oral sex performed on him? Where he's like, well, this feels really good. Like, I don't know if I should feel this good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 25-year-old virgin, I think. Yeah. Uh, Demarion Kalen Bible, believe it or not, is his last name. Wow. Mm -hmm. Of Minneapolis is charged with second-degree murder after the deadly shooting near Lake Street early Tuesday morning. According to charging documents, witnesses reported to police that they had heard a gunshot near the courtyard in front of 3023 4th Avenue South around 545 a.m. and saw a man walking north from the area along 4th Avenue towards Lake Street. Using surveillance footage, investigators were able to follow a suspect from the Lake Street LRT station, that's light rail transit, uh, to the Nicollet 5th Street station, stopped downtown. He then went into an apartment building at 95 South 10th Street. Apartment management was able to identify Bible by, or for investigators from a photograph provided by police. Speaking with authorities, Bible initially claimed he was not involved in the shooting, but later admitted that he was once shown the video footage gathered by investigators. He then admitted to shooting the victim, saying she made him feel suspicious while performing oral sex. I still don't know I what don't that understand means. what that means. <laughs> I don't know. After the sex act was complete, Bible said he continued to feel suspicious, so he shot her. Gunshot residue was located on her sweatshirt hood, according to police, 
and he admitted to shooting her from inches away. Once arrested, Bible was given a phone to make calls to his parents, during which he told his dad that he just murdered someone and that he knew he wasn't God, but he had to do it. Uh, there's mental. Yeah, there's, there's some mental illness Mental there. illness, yeah. A search warrant was executed at his apartment, and a 9mm Polymer 80 handgun with no serial number was recovered, along with a 22 caliber rifle. Bible is currently in custody. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, hopefully he gets the help he needs in prison. Yeah. That's a sad thing, is people with mental health issues, even when they're convicted, usually don't get the help they need in prison. No. But when somebody says something like this... Especially saying, you know, I'm helping God or doing it for God or whatever. You, they need to be looked at by somebody. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a telltale warning sign right there when somebody said yeah. felt suspicious. Yeah. Like, I'm one, I, he's probably undiagnosed schizophrenic. Probably. Probably, yeah. You know, and and, and that just brought out the, the schizophrenic side in him. And he never experienced it before, so. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. It's a sad, a sad, sad tale. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that'll do it today for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. Bruiser, tell people where you're going to be this weekend. I have the weekend off. I'm relaxing, but I am training all week long at the AML Training Center here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Come on out, train with me. Um, go to amlwrestling.com slash training um, and get ready for January 20th. Uh, it's my next big show. It's War Games 3. The Benton Convention Center. Arn Anderson will be there. James J. Dillon will be there. And Kurt Angle is going to be our special guest. Whoa. Yep. Nice. Yep. So I get to work with Kurt. Nice, nice, nice. That sounds like an awesome, awesome card. Um, I'm back up at KNSI this weekend. Two weeks in a row, huh? Two weeks in a row, man. Got to make that scroll. I got to make that cash. So, um, <laughs> feeling. Yep, so uh, I'll be up at KNSI this weekend. If you want to hear me uh, ramble on about things that aren't paranormal, like news, weather, sports, stuff like that, tune in between 7 and 9 a.m. Central Time, KNSIRadio.com. Uh, that'll do it for today. Uh, again, folks, I uh, want you to check out the book that we were talking about today. Uh, that book is The Last Applicant, uh, Rebecca Hanover. And uh, I encourage you to go out and get that book. We have a link in the description of this show. And uh, again, it's a, a creepy tale, man. Just a creepy tale. Lots of disturbing stuff in that in that book. I want you to check that book out. Rebecca Hanover has uh, knocked herself out with that, with, with that book, The Last Applicant. So I uh, want you to check that out as well. Tomorrow on the big show, Supernatural News. Thursday, we're talking to uh, Eric Coleman. We're going to do some uh, monster watching on, uh, on Thursday. Very cool. That's right. So for Beer City Bruiser, I'm Tim Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us today on the best in true crime podcasting. This has been True Crime Tuesday. Tuesday.